Hey, this is John. And this is Tim. And today on the podcast, we're going to do a question and response episode. And we're going to do these throughout the series that we're in on Seventh-day Rest. And we're going to drop them midweek. Yep. And yeah, that's a new approach. Normally, we put them in the weekly flow yeah. of the series, but we're going to try just making them a little bonus. Do them more often. Episodes. Do them midweek. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. Sounds like a plan. Deal. So we're m- multiple episodes in now. I think this is November 11th. 11-11. We just released episode five. Episode five. Okay. Oh, wow. Cosmic right. time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or the cathedral in time. Mm-hmm. Oh, pro- but that no was one's the listened, one. No one's listened to that. That was the one on the tabernacle. Yeah, on the tabernacle. Oh, maybe some people have. I don't know. Well, yes, that's true. Yeah, it dropped this morning. It's three in the afternoon. Yeah, no. About, <laughs> yeah, many people have listened to it <laughs> yeah, so far. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that was a cool conversation. Yeah, so uh, we're up to the tabernacle in the podcast series. We're going to, oh man, we're going in to the story of the temple after that. No, all of the feast days in Leviticus. Right. The jubilee and exile is anti-jubilee or inverted jubilee. That's all to come. That's all to come. The temple, prophets, Jesus and the Sabbath, the New Testament, the apostles did. <laughs> so much good stuff. Ahead. So what we're finding is a lot of the questions that are coming in mm, mm-hmm. don't know where we're heading. That's right. Yes. And They'll some be, of them will be answered. Uh, or responded to. Responded to. <laughs> yeah, addressed. Yeah. yeah addressed. Yeah. But at the same time, yeah. we may yeah. uh, throw it in the mix before we get to it. Yep. So let's get going. Yeah. First one is from Sam, who's from Ohio. Hi, my name is Sam from Marysville, Ohio. I've heard you use the phrase that the Hebrew authors are in conversation with their Canaanite neighbors. In the creation narratives, when the Hebrew authors use the word avodah for slave labor or work, are they saying something significant to their Canaanite neighbors, who in some of their creation accounts claim that the gods created humans to be their slaves? Is the word avodah tied to a unique claim that the Hebrew authors are trying to make about the relationship between God, work, and rest? Thanks so much. Yeah, great question, Sam. So work. This is interesting. So you have the ideal setup of Genesis 1 where God's the one working, yeah? Mm -hmm. And he rests from his work on the seventh day. So God rests from his work after ordering the cosmos. But then on day six of Genesis 1, he appoints humans to rule and subdue the land. Yeah, which is going to take work. However, it's not till the Eden narrative... Genesis 2 kind of retells that story from a different angle of God plants a garden, you know, provides water and plants a garden, creates a human, and then appoints the human. And it's the first time we get the word avad, which is the verb of the noun you mentioned, Sam, avodah, which means labor or work. To work the ground. Uh, mm -hmm. But it's also the word evad from the same root is the main Hebrew word for slave. Mm. Uh, And avodah is what the word used to describe the Israelite slavery in Egypt. So the word work, it means just labor. Yeah. But in Hebrew, someone who does avodah and is the property of another is an eved. Mm-hmm. Okay. A laborer. And all of Israel was mm-hmm. uh, enslaved to Egypt, yeah. so they were all... Laborers. Laborers. Yeah, slaves. So your question, Sam, is about the cross-cultural resonance of this image of God putting a human, creating a human for labor. Yeah, that's interesting. So if you're a Canaanite and you're reading or you're hearing Mm -hmm. the Israelite Eden narrative, Mm -hmm. 
and he puts a man in the garden to slave as a slave almost yeah. would sound like. Or, or just to labor and to keep. To labor. And you'd be like, yeah. oh, that sounds like mm-hmm. your God wants you to mm-hmm. be a slave. Well, except, again, Genesis 1 and 2 as complementary portraits. Yeah. So the portrait of Genesis 1 is of a royal priests, kings and queens of creation mm-hmm. who rule. Mm-hmm. And the, the work that they're doing then in Genesis, if you only had Genesis 2, you might wonder, oh, like what kind of work is this? Is this a... God's creating humans as slaves, because that story is in the air. It's actually not a Canaanite story, but it's a Babylonian story. So two of the most famous foundation stories for ancient Babylonian culture, one was called Enuma Elish, which tells the story of the rise of Babylon and their god Marduk to become the great power in the world. That's the one where Marduk defeats the seven-headed dragon. By blowing the throat open (laughs) and shooting arrows. Done. Yeah, the, the, dragon's the chaos monster's mouth. Yeah. So uh, the other important foundation story is called the Atrahasis epic, Atrahasis. So this story uh, begins with uh, the origination of the main deities of the land. There's the god, the chief god of the land. His name is Enlil. Uh, there's Anu, the sky god, and Enki, the water god. Mm. So heavens and the land and the waters. Yeah. It's basic elements of the ancient cosmos. Sounds familiar. Uh, yep, sound, start, sound familiar. Then you've got some other tiers of deities, and there's a whole story about how these deities all emerged from the primary deities and so on. But uh, there's this group called Igigi. I like them. Igigi. Igigi. The Igigi. They're lower-class deities who serve the upper-class deities, the ones at the top. And they staged the first, like, labor union walkout, <laughs> <laughs> I guess, in recorded economic history. Because they're tired of farming and, you know, providing food for all of the gods who are more important than them. So they go to Enlil and they protest and they arrange that they're going to make another creature who will serve everybody. Mm. The whole, all the gods. Mm-hmm. Give them food, give them clothes, all this. Yeah. Build them houses. And this new creature needs to be uh, more than just an animal, mm-hmm. right? Could be kind of like half clay creature, half divine. Yeah. So they um, kill one of their own, mm. like, uh, a, a deity named Geshtu, and they pour out his blood and they make clay. Mm. They pour out his blood into the dirt, making make clay. clay. Out of the blood, dirt. Yep. And then they produce humans. The first humans oh. come from the blood of the gods mixed with clay. Mm. And then um, now you have the humans, and they're essentially they're made as slaves of the gods to give them food, clothing, and build their houses. Mm. So this is the origin story of, of humanity in their culture. <laughs> brutal origin story. Totally. And this is a transparent legitimation story for the Babylonian hierarchy. Yeah. <laughs> because the chief, the king, and his, all his counselors and so on are either the embodiment of or the appointees of the gods. They mm. are the image of God. Mm. That's like these are phrases. The elite used. are the image of God. The elite are the image of God. And the rest of the humans are essentially the slaves. So, of course, this is the story about the origin of all of the normal humans Mm. because it legitimates the social order they're they're trying to hold up. To make sure that we can stay fed and happy. That's right. Yeah. Because we rule you. Yeah. So, you you get to Genesis 1 and it says everyone's the image of God. Correct. And you're like, everyone? Yeah. Really? Man and woman, all humans? Yeah, that's right. And then in in the Eden narrative, yep. when they go to work, then it comes out of that identity 
yes. of everyone being the image That's of God. That's right. So in other words, the labor of humanity in Genesis 1 and 2 is a co-partnering with as God's images. Mm. So it's partnering with God to rule the world and to invest in it, labor to create new undiscovered possibilities, just mm. like God mm. brought new possibilities out of the darkness and chaos. Just like God was working in Genesis 1. Yeah, that's 1. right. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, it's what we would call today, we would call it has an elevated dignity of the human species, but not just for some, but for the whole race. So that's what ancient Babylonians and Canaanites would have noticed. And it seems like it's an intentional part of the portrait, that it's a royal co-worker portrait as opposed to a slave of the gods kind of portrait. I think that's really interesting. It is interesting. Is there another Hebrew word for work that doesn't have the same slave overtones? Oh, yeah. There's the the work that God rests from in Genesis 1. It's the word melacha. Melacha. And then oh, there's some other... Wait, what, where is that word? In Genesis 1? It's on the seventh day when God rested from all of his work. All of his work there, his melakah. And so in the Sabbath commands, that's the kind of work you rest from. Also, the avad word is also used. trying to think. Ecclesiastes has this word, toil, amal. Amal. And that that becomes um, his key word for kind of the post-Eden work. Mm, What work becomes. Yeah. So if you could avad before the fall and after the fall... He wants to really drill in on the, the kind of work after mm. the fall, and he calls it, calls it amal, toil, mm. chasing after the wind. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. then the other one that starts with an M, what's that one again? Oh, melacha. Melacha. Yeah, melacha. How else is that used? Yeah. Uh, it can be used to describe people's property. Uh, a thief is somebody who puts their hands on their neighbor's melacha. Hmm. So, so the, it can mean property. Property, what you've worked for. Your possessions. Oh, what you've worked for. Yeah, okay. Yeah, what you've worked for. The tabernacle, all the instruments of the, or like, you know, the tables and poles and tent things of the tabernacle are all called melacha on analogy to Genesis 1 Mm. because the tabernacle. Because God, melachad. Yep. And because the tabernacle is a mini. The cosmos. Cosmos. Yeah, Mm. that's right. How else is the man? Tabernacle narratives is where the majority of this word occurs. And then in Sabbath commands. That's really interesting. Is it just a synonym? Uh, It is a synonym. This is from the Dictionary of Classical Hebrew by David Klein's editor. Melacha, work, task, deed, business, trade. You can refer to handiworks or crafts, property, versus avodah, which is more about toil. Excuse me, like physical labor. You know, don't we have... uh, to work, to serve, mm-hmm. to be subservient to, to perform service, to labor. Yeah, um, we have tons of words. Yeah. I'm just curious if like, mm. it's just, yeah, they had two different words. And so one was used in mm. Genesis 1, one was used in oh. Genesis 2. Or if there's some significance to God's work being Malachi. I see. And the human's work being, being Avodah. Avodah. Yeah, that's a good, yeah, that's a good question. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that would be, yeah, I haven't, haven't I don't have it. the full concordance uploaded into my mind. <laughs> if I was, if I was a better man, I would, but I don't. Uh, okay. So Sam <laughs> from Ohio, man. that's a great, that's a great question. <laughs> Next, we have a question from Laura from Missouri. 
Hi, Tim and John. This is Laura from St. Louis, Missouri. As you're talking about sacred time built into the fabric of creation, particularly how the sun, moon, and stars are intended to mark the days and times for seasons and feasts, would these things still have been the case if the fall did not occur? Were these intended to be a part of the people of God regardless of the fall? And if so, what would they be looking back to or forward to? Thanks so much for all you do. That's kind of a tricky question. Yeah, that's a very thoughtful question. I appreciated it. And I've never quite thought to ask it in that way. That's why I liked it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm happy to, to, to respond. So even though the event being referred to Mm -hmm. in Genesis 1 is the beginning of all things. Yeah. Although from a different cosmological perspective, a different sense of the cosmos than, you know, what I was grew up with in public school of like the solar system and the galaxies and Big Bang and all that kind of thing, expanding universe. So different cosmologies Mm -hmm. and how the cosmos is structured. Mm -hmm. However... The universe had some kind of beginning, <laughs> yeah. and this is a story claiming to make some claims about that. The trick is, is that the vantage point of the narrator's speaking voice mm-hmm. is not from the vantage point of the first seconds of the universe. Right. The vantage point is from way down the line of the biblical narrative. Mm-hmm. In other words, the origins of the world are being described in precisely the language and categories needed to set you up for the whole drama of the biblical narrative from Genesis to Kings, especially from creation to Israel's exile. Mm -hmm. So the whole story is focused on Israel as God's conduit for producing a promised seed through whom the new creation will come into being. So Genesis 1 isn't like a neutral, pre-enculturated version of like video camera footage of the Big Bang. <laughs> right. It's very much a version. It's an ancient Israelite cosmology meant to explain specifically what Genesis 1 is we're going to see. No, we just, in this episode that dropped today on November 11th, is Genesis 1 is teeing you up to give you the categories for Israel's sacred space and sacred time in the tabernacle and temple and the sacred calendar. So think of it this way. If Israel's sacred calendar is being referred to in Genesis 1, God appoints the sun, moon, stars. Yeah, so this is, Gen- I'm just reading it again. Yep, yep. 114, mm-hmm. God said, let there be lights in the vaults, mm-hmm. the ruach of the sky. No, no, no. Is that the right word? In the rakia. Rakia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the rakia of the sky to yeah. separate the day from the night. Mm-hmm. Let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. Right. Referring to yeah. their feasts. The feast days of is that we're going to read about and. Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. So here's God at the beginning of the ordering of the cosmos, and the purpose of the stars were for these Mm -hmm. feasts for ancient Israel. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. One of those feasts is Passover, (laughs) (laughs) which hasn't happened in narrative time yet. Right. One of them is the Day of Atonement, (laughs) which is when the people's sins are dealt with and covered Right, mm-hmm. but it, there's no sin in the narrative that's happened yet. Right, this is what I think is prompting your question, Laura. Yes, right. Yeah. So, in other words, the narrator's vantage point is that of somebody for whom the sacred space and sacred time of Israel's calendar and tabernacle—they mm-hmm. are the way that the seventh day rest and the micro Eden are being remembered and recovered and reenacted. And Genesis 1 is told from that vantage point, that these, these ways that God has told us 
to recreate Eden here in the tabernacle and in the sacred calendar. These are woven into the fabric of God's redemptive purposes for the universe. Mm -hmm. uh, and Genesis 1 is told from that vantage point. Genesis 2 is told from a different vantage point, right? Genesis 1 begins with its chaos and disorder mm. in the dark, watery abyss. Mm -hmm. Genesis 2 begins its disorder in uncultivated wilderness without any water. Mm. So the two visions of the beginning that both begin in chaos and disorder. Genesis 1 is specifically teed up to prepare you for recovery of the seventh day Eden ideal in the tabernacle and the ritual calendar. Does that make any sense? It does make sense, but it still questions still then underneath that is. Mm. And I think this is kind of how I was trained to read mm. these chapters as well, is God creates this kind of perfect, untouched by mm. evil and sin mm. kind of cosmos and world mm. that he puts humans in. Mm. And so there's this desire to kind of go back and go, okay, so what is the ideal? Mm-hmm. And if you go back and you look at Genesis one, and you like mm -hmm. the and you're looking for an ideal, mm -hmm. then you go, oh, well, God made the stars to show these sacred days, mm -hmm. so the ideal must be mm -hmm. to observe these sacred days. Ah, uh, right. Now that was the ideal for an ancient Israelite, mm -hmm. and so it's doing that work. Mm -hmm. But now we're reading it mm -hmm. post Jesus as non-Jewish people who. Yeah want to use uh, the scriptures for wisdom. Yeah, yeah, so do yeah. you go back and say, there is an ideal uh, of these sacred yes. days being part of our life rhythm? And if it's not, then it mm -hmm. almost starts to feel like, mm -hmm. what other strings can you pull and unravel things out of here? <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. You know, and, all, and that argument has been used throughout history, even in the first generations where you have, uh, you know, the church like in Rome, for example, you can tell from the letter to the Romans or in Galatia, where you have mm -hmm. some Messianic Jews, yeah. not all, but some, who are certain that the scriptures are very clear, that if Gentiles want to enter the family of Abraham, they need to become Torah observant and yeah. start observing Celebrate the, feast. the sacred calendar, because the sacred calendar isn't just for Israel, it's for the new humanity that corresponds to God's original vision for humanity yes. in Genesis 1 and, and 2. And if that's your position, going yeah. to Genesis 1.14, yeah, uh, uh. we'd be like, see... Yep, he, exactly. Or, he put Look, it in the fabric of the cosmos. That's right. So it seems like Jesus and uh, the apostles drew a different conclusion. Uh, <laughs> for them, what was universal was the, the symbolic meaning of the seventh day. I mean, this is where our conversation is going in the podcast series. Yeah. This is why Jesus uh, began to redefine and include new definitions of work on the Sabbath, <laughs> hmm. uh, the work of healing and restoration. Mm -hmm. And this is ultimately what led the apostles to say that Israel's calendar wasn't obligatory for followers of Jesus because the kingdom of God inaugurated in Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the seventh day of the Passover, of the Day of Atonement, of tabernacles, um, it's the It's the kingdom of God. That's what all of these symbols point to. So, <laughs> does that make any sense? Yes. It seems like the Messianic Jews of the early Jesus movement, as the Jesus movement went cross-cultural and the whole inclusion of the Gentiles without having to become kosher and circumcised and Torah observant for the sacred days. So that was a key moment 
where they believed that in Jesus' inauguration of the kingdom of God, the symbolic meaning of the Sabbath and of Israel's calendar came to its fulfillment in the age of the kingdom of God and the coming of the Spirit. So if I understand then what you're saying is Genesis 1 was not mm-hmm. written in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. It was written by... Mm-hmm. The biblical authors. The biblical authors who were <laughs> yeah. Israelites, yeah. Yeah. who as part of their identity mm. as uh, the people of God had sacred days and mm-hmm. feasts to observe. Mm-hmm. And so when they are... They grew Christian up immersed cal- in the sacred calendar, in the weekly Sabbath rhythm. It's their world. Yeah. It's their cosmos. So as they're reflecting on that mm-hmm. and they're... Writing mm-hmm. Genesis 1 <laughs> through yeah. the or Holy the, the Spirit. Whole, yeah, the Holy Spirit directs them. And the Holy Spirit directs them yeah, yeah. to put in the stars are signs for mm-hmm. their sacred days mm-hmm. and years. Yes. That seems specific to them. Yep. And what you're saying is the apostles clearly... Well, well, well the first step is within the Hebrew Bible itself, yeah. those sacred days are the way that God is recreating Israel mm-hmm. according to the seventh-day rest Eden ideal of Genesis 1 and 2. Okay. That's why those clues are there. That's why all the temple calendar clues are there in Genesis 1 all and 2. All this is pointing to the ideal. That's right. You get to Jesus and he says, I am that which this has all been pointing to. Exactly. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Yeah. I am... Yeah, the Lord of the Sabbath. Uh, he reads from Isaiah 61. Yeah. It says the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee is here. begun. Today these things are fulfilled. This is all hearing. fulfilled in me. That's right. And that doesn't mean you have to stop no. observing any of these holy days. No. Many... Messianic but Jews it also did. means you yeah. don't have to, yeah, because they were all mm-hmm. a foreshadow of what he was doing, yeah, or going to do. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So they served as markers for these days that were also markers mm-hmm. for a person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in yeah. a way. Yeah, totally. Yep, I think I think that's exactly right. Yeah, this is why we're gonna. By the way, we're gonna have this conversation over and over and over again in all these Q and R's. This is whenever you talk about Sabbath, these are all exactly the questions that come up. So actually, we have some later questions that are going to. Oh, actually, the next question I selected is same issue, but from another angle. This is from Mike, who lives in South Africa. Hey guys, my name is Mike. I'm from South Africa. My question is, is the number seven a divine construct uh, important into the um, Israelite thinking? Uh, or is it or was it a already established cultural idea that God just adopted to kind of teach something that they would have understood uh, if he spoke in their language? Thank you. Is he saying like, was this idea already in the air, and so God used it as like a mm. teaching lesson? Yeah, the contrast, the way Mike puts it, we see these as opposites. Is it either a divine construct imported into the biblical author's minds? In other words, the idea of the seven-day scheme is actually like a universal divine concept that dropped out of the heavens into the biblical author's minds mm-hmm. with no cultural influence, or sure. whatever. Right. Or... Is it a, like, a cultural idea at work in the cultures around Israel that happened through the culture of Israel, and then God is using that through the biblical authors to teach? Something? Is it a law of the universe like gravity? Right. <laughs> or is it <laughs> yeah, yeah, just 
a social construct. Yeah, like... that's right. This is the questions that come up with Genesis 1. So what we want to do is actually take Genesis 1 out of its language, historical, cultural context mm-hmm. of its Israelite ancient context and make it about the origins of the universe in some abstract ideal mm-hmm. form. Right. And usually by that we mean according to 21st century Western cosmology. <laughs> Usually, what's assumed but not stated in those conversations. Right. And so, uh, then what we're looking for is like patterns of seven in modern mathematical equations of physics or something right. like that. I think that's a, a dead end hmm. intellectually because it doesn't honor the most basic form of human communication that God's chosen to use through the scriptures and through Jesus, which is words only mean what they mean in light of the language in which they're spoken. And language is a product of human societies and cultures, which differ and develop over time. Mm -hmm. And so if you really believe in the incarnation of Jesus as a first century Aramaic-speaking Jew who pooped his diapers and grew up in Nazareth, you believe that God works in and through culturally influenced and shaped people and processes. Mm And so I think it's only consistent to say Genesis 1 is the same. It's an ancient Israelite cosmology. So where I should look is both within ancient Israelite culture, within the biblical narrative, and then within the cultures around Israel for what, why the number seven would be used. And that's what we did real briefly in our first episode. So that's the approach that's most compelling to me. Uh, and that has been the most fruitful in illuminating biblical literature and understanding it in its context for me. Well, let's say Genesis 1 was written during Second Temple Judaism. Yeah, or even let's just say it were even during the First Temple. First Temple. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. On um, Mosaic authorship okay. models during, you know, when the tabernacle. So, yeah, maybe it was in some form being passed around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even as early as as the time of the tabernacle. And the Sabbath ideal or law was Mm. in the narrative Mm. happens right after the Exodus. Yeah, that's right. The actual command to observe the Sabbath comes way later in in Exodus. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Well, or, I mean, I guess depending on where you think this story materialized. Oh, I see. You know what I mean? Uh, Well, sure. sure. Here's a question. Did they already have the law of Moses? Mm Mm-hmm before the circulation or writing of the creation story? Mm-hmm. Or did the creation story exist? Mm. Moses knew it, and then he got the law. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, and that's a fascinating question. But that's a different question than reading Genesis 1 as the introductory chapter to the Hebrew Bible, to the Tanakh collection. Mm-hmm. The current function of Genesis 1 is to give you all of the language the categories, vocabulary, and themes that you need to read the rest of this literary collection. Hmm. And lo and behold, (laughs) it gives you everything you need because what the narrative is doing, it's written by an Israelite for an Israelite audience who, and that Israelite audience and that Israelite author grew up immersed in in this calendar. The whole story is about this people believes that through them, God is doing something to bring new creation to all the nations. And Genesis 1 functions perfectly as the, the prologue, as a, as a way mm. of thinking about the origins of the universe for that kind of story. The problem is when we want Genesis 1 to serve our 
cosmological purposes <laughs> uh, and answer our cosmological questions according to modern physics. We're wondering if That's the number seven might somehow correct, like help us solve string theory or something. Yeah, totally. And who knows? I'm not a physicist, but... <laughs> To me, that's a totally different question than reading an ancient text and asking what is its meaning. And the story of the Bible, of the Hebrew scriptures, is of a people set apart yes, yes. to reclaim yeah. this uh, relationship with God so that the whole world can then be blessed through it. Mm -hmm. And as part of them being recreated mm -hmm. and transformed is these sacred feasts and Correct. festivals. Correct. And yep. so yep. to set that up, to understand the significance of yeah. that, yeah. and you're reading God ordering the cosmos, mm -hmm. you see like, oh yeah, mm. basic to the whole universe, not just to me and my yeah. my clan. Basic to the Israelite view of the universe. <laughs> Israelite, my, yeah, but, but their yeah. view of the universe is... Yeah. That this is yes, um, yeah, not just that's not correct. just their view that's of the correct. universe. The Israelite view of the universe has relevance for all. That's why Genesis one through eleven is about all humanity, not just God and Israel. But it's told in the language and categories that set you up for the story of what God is doing through Israel. Yeah, mm -hmm. and yeah, I just want to repeat this because mm -hmm. I wanted to help it land for me mm -hmm. that you could look at this and mm -hmm. then say. Well, you see, we need to practice the Sabbath. It's woven into the fabric of the cosmos. Mm. Read in Genesis 1. Because God, God did it. Yeah, God did it. Yeah. You got to do it. Also, all the feasts and holy days, also woven into the fabric of how mm -hmm. God ordered the cosmos. That's why the stars exist. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Read Genesis 1.14. Yeah, yeah. That's a really good argument. Mm. <laughs> and what you're saying is, well, yeah, and that's especially a good argument because that's their identity as Israelites. But what they didn't see coming and what the narrative is kind of slowly going to boil up to is that all of this is our uh, signs pointing towards what ultimately is going to be a person. Yes, totally. That's exactly right. An exalted image of God, human, ruling with God as his partner, an image in the never-ending seven-day rest. Yeah. That's what Genesis. That's how Genesis one ends with God and His image mm. living together in the seventh day oh, rest yeah. that has no end. Right. And then you turn to page two, and immediately that ideal is not realized. And if you had a seventh day rest with no end, mm -hmm. then there is no point in Sabbath and festivals. You're living in a different type of yeah. time space. That's right. That's philosophy. right. Philosophy. Yeah. And so the whole story then from Genesis two onward is about these failed partners that God keeps putting up with as he tries to recreate and lead humanity towards the seventh day rest and people keep blowing it. And so the Israelite calendar is one of the ways, it's the main way for Israel that he institutes that they have all now, they have seven now of these feasts. They're all, and they're all pointing to the same ideal yet to be realized. So all the, the, the sun or sorry, the stars, they're pointing towards feasts that are pointing towards an ideal, which the seventh day <laughs> is in, the ultimate in Genesis of. 1 itself is Correct. the fulfillment of. That's right. That's so, right. so yeah, you get to day, what is it, four, yeah. and God creates the, the stars, yeah. and, you're, and you're like, and there's signs, and yeah. you're like, awesome, let's, let's follow this. And by day seven, they don't matter anymore. <laughs> is that what you're saying? Oh, well, I mean, part of this is, 
uh, this is the function of the Hebrew Bible is meditation literature. Yeah. So there are things buried in the opening pages that are only comprehensible once you've read through the whole collection. I know. It's kind of funny to think about. It, and then come back and read it If again. it's a day that doesn't end, yeah. then yeah, what are the purpose of this the yeah, sun and sure. stars and now. so from in a linear narrative perspective yeah that, that yeah that makes sense but uh when you read genesis one as like the prologue and the summary of the whole story you're about to read mm. uh this is why jesus calls himself the son of adam mm. <laughs> son of man who's the lord of the sabbath he's he is bringing that seventh day into reality he is the image of god as paul says in colossians one and the firstborn of the new of the new creation. Mm. So, yeah, I think that's landing. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Sorry to beat that down. Oh so no, uh, Laura and Mike, these were wonderful questions. This is uh, Brianna who came for the John class. Hi guys, this is Brianna from Wisconsin. I have a question about the flood narrative and what's going on there with all of the uses of time and sevens that keep getting repeated. I'm wondering if all of the references to time are supposed to somehow get mapped onto Israel's calendar and the feast days. And if so, does that somehow tie into Noah and his name meaning rest? And what are we meant to see there with all of the references to time and sevens and the idea that Noah is is rest and bringing rest to the world? Thanks for all you guys do. This has been a fascinating series. Yeah, man. Yeah. What is she saying? Yeah, dude, the flood story. So awesome. Did, we didn't talk about this, did we? Uh, or did we? A little bit. I don't actually. I don't, don't remember all the sevens in the flood story. I don't remember. This could be a long, just, we could do a whole class, just a whole class on the flood story. But when God tells Noah that he's going to bring the waters of the flood, what he said, this is in cha- Genesis chapter 7. And God tells Noah that he's going to, bring the animals in oh, okay. by sevens. Right, yeah, yeah. And then according to all the categories of Genesis 1. And then in verse 4, he says, in seven more days, I'm going to send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. All uh, literally blot out from the face of the land, all life that I've made. Verse 6, Noah was 600 years old. Old when, man. Yep, when the flood waters came upon the land. So there you go. So he's told in seven more days then rain will come for 40 days and 40 nights. Does that make sense? That's yes. In seven days. So down in verse 10, it came about after seven days, the waters came. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that very day, all the springs of the deep, yeah. these are the... Um, Fountains. Yeah, well, it's the water. Yeah, it's the waters underneath from, the land. Coming up, yeah. Yep. And then the um, windows up in the Rakia drop. Mm-hmm. Right. So the waters above and below that were separated on day two are now collapsing back in on each other. Mm. That's the image. And the rain fell for 40 days and 40 nights. So here's what's interesting. So you have this 40, you have seven days, yeah. 40 days and 40 nights. You have seven, you have pairs of animals in sevens. Sevens, yep, that's right. Go down to the end of chapter seven. The last sentence of chapter seven is the water... Uh, was strong on the earth, on the land, for 150 days. Hmm. So the point is, somebody really wants us to pay attention to these numbers, time notices, yeah. and so on. So what? there's three sets of schemes here. There's a seven-day mm-hmm. theme here at work. There's a 40 days yes. and 40 nights. 
And then there's this 150 days. What's interesting is if you follow the numbers, they appear, if you read the, read the story through, highlighting the, these notices, they're in exactly reverse symmetry order. They're in the order of a chiasm, all the numbers. Oh, really? Yep. So God tells Noah about the seven in seven more days. The rain will come for 40 days and 40 nights. Mm -hmm. The water was over 150 days. Chapter 8, verse 3. Then the water receded at the end of 150 days. Chapter 8, verse 6. It came about at the end of 40 days. And then in chapters 8, verse 10. Then he waited another seven days. Then verse 12, another seven days. Mm. So the numbers, they're exactly mentioned in um, yeah. mirror order that they were back in chapter seven. Mm. That interesting. Two sevens, a 40. Two a sevens, 40 days, 40 nights. Another 150, another 40, two more sevens. Correct. Yeah, that's right. Notice. Why does that matter? <laughs> look at the notice uh, in verse 13 okay. of chapter eight. Now it came about in the 601st year, in the first month, on the first of the month, mm. the water dried up from the earth. What is the first year? 601st, what's... It. That's Noah's life. What's... Okay, yeah. That's his birthday? Yep. That's his birthday? 601st year. Yeah, it was his birthday. In the first month, on the first of the month. What's the first month? What's the In Genesis month? 1 through 11. The first month of what? <laughs> of what calendar? Are you with me? No. In Genesis 8, verse 13, in the 600 year and first year... In of Noah's life. In the first life. month... The first month of his... On the life? first of the month. Did you see this? On the, in Noah's, in the 601st year, it yeah. seems like of Noah's life. Yeah. On the first month, on the first of the month. Okay. According to what calendar? Probably ours, January 1. <laughs> <laughs> no, dude, this is fascinating. The flood story is all coordinated to Israel's sacred calendar. Okay. Laid out in the book of Leviticus. Really? So fascinating, dude. And this is the month of Tishri. It's the month that has uh, that begins with Rosh Hashanah uh -huh. on the first day of this very day. Uh -huh. It's Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah. That's being noted right here. Uh -huh. It's the month of the Day of Atonement. <laughs> it's the month of Tabernacles mm. going through the wilderness in the mm. tent. So, and actually, here uh, this isn't just me. This is like old, old observation in Jewish tradition. Oh, and it's also within the calendar back to the first day of creation within the chronological scheme of Genesis 1 through 11 mm -hmm. and then the sacred calendar, how it works out. It's also the day of uh, the creation narrative. So I'm quoting from Michael Morales, a really amazing book called The Tabernacle Prefigured Cosmic Mountain Ideology in Genesis and Exodus. Mm. Doesn't that sound thrilling? <laughs> it's actually a great book. So he says, not only is a new year for Noah beginning, but a new year's day for the whole world, mm, the yeah. birthday of creation. Mm. On this very day, the world rises again from the chaos of the flood waters. The removal of the ark's cover is Noah's New Year's celebration, so to speak, which is a renewed creation and a new life start. This is also the same day later on in the story when the tabernacle will be commissioned into service. Mm. It, in Exodus chapter 40. It's the first day of the first month. Exactly. Oh. Yeah, and so on and so on. Hmm. So what's happening here is, and then Noah's going to uh, then do the testing to get off the boat and then get off the boat and offer a sacrifice, which God will smell and be pleased and, um, and then say, I'm never going to bring the flood again, hmm. which he brings rest to the land and brings comfort and peace to the land.
So, Brianna, your point is, your observations are there's something with these patterns of seven, especially, but actually the whole numerical sequence is trying to play, replay the flood story as a replay of Genesis 1, but then also... In, or in, like an undoing of Genesis 1. Yeah, it's a, un, it's a decreation and then a recreation story. Mm-hmm. And it ends with deliverance through the waters in the new year, and then in the same month, Noah will offer his great sacrifice that uh, will please God. And all of this is happening in the same month that when you come to Israel's calendar later on is the month of Tishri, which is Rosh Hashanah, the Day of Atonement, and Tabernacles are all, mm. are all in that same month. And it's the month that the tabernacle itself is or like commissioned in Exodus chapter 40. Yeah, so that makes sense that this you would read this story and you'd go, Oh, okay, this is the this is the new year. Noah comes out of the ark mm-hmm. on the new year, the first day of the year. Mm-hmm. That you said something about then all of these numbers are about the mm. the calendar. So mm. the significance of these other seven, seven, mm. forty, one fifty? Uh-huh. Well, the forty days and forty nights is actually a, an important motif. Yes. In periods, in periods of purging and testing. Okay. And this is actually fairly simple. You just get out of concordance and yeah. look at all the 40 days right. or 40 nights. And um, there are periods of waiting and testing, usually in a period of transformation or purging. So it's like a design pattern. Yes. And it's actually the 40 days and 40 nights that kind of makes the chronology of the flood narrative difficult to map precisely. Because hmm. when you add up the sevens, the 40s, and the 150s, it it's challenging to do. Mm. And it seems like there's two, like the 40 days and 40 nights is more like a fixed kind of trope, a, very, a round number in the story, okay. introducing the motif of the waiting, okay. the waiting in the ark. And yeah. what's the 150? What's the significance of that? Because um, 40, I am familiar yeah, with. Yeah, 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 that's right. Israelites in the wilderness. Um, Jesus well, it's the... part of the way that you get to, because the whole point is it's one whole calendar year. That's essentially, he gets the, the he gets onto the ark and the floodwaters start when he's 600, and it's in the 601st year. So those 250s are, oh. a, part, are a part of making up a whole a full, cal- year. full calendar year that he's on the boat. Oh, That's I right. see. Yeah. So, which is why, which gets you to him getting off the boat. But it's not the first day of the first month in the 600 year. It's the 17th day on the second month. Uh, you're looking at 8, oh, that, 13? 7, 11. That's when the flood started. Correct. Yep. I'm looking at 813 in the 601st year, yes. the first month on the first That's of the month. That's when it ends. That's right. However, then verse 14, in the second month of the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. So the ark even... Yeah, it took a while. Like though. a rest. Yeah, there's, and then there's all these waiting periods of seven days after that. Anyhow, there's more detail than we need to get into. My point was just, Brianna, you're on to something. And uh, isn't that cool? How like you, Brianna, just notice? Well, there's sevens in this flood narrative. <laughs> yeah, you totally. Just start pulling at it. Yeah, that's right. There's a whole world there that. Yeah, totally. Now we can't do justice in a few minutes. Yeah, I think I'm just really confused, but I'm <laughs> intrigued. Yeah, Confu- yeah. I, I, and for the record, I need to do some more work to map out exactly how they all work. But um, Jewish interpreters and Christian have noticed. The chronology of the flood narrative matches Genesis 1 and the tabernacle commissioning and the feast calendar. All these calendars are connected. And of, of course they are. I mean, of course they are. Yeah. That's, it's one cohesive story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's what we would expect.
to the next one's about Exodus story, which we just talked about. John from Virginia. Hey guys, it's John Sturgar from Fairfax, Virginia. My question is about the flight episode. Tim, you mentioned that the Exodus story participates with days one, two, and three of the creation account. I was wondering if there was anything following that that maps onto days four, five, and six as we anticipate the new Eden. So thankful for everything you guys do. It has been a huge faith builder. Thank you so much. Yeah, perceptive. <laughs> Good question, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. That, that is what the narrative leads you to think then, right? right? Yeah, so, dig around and find it. So, so in other words, um, within the parting, parting of the water story in Exodus 14, mm-hmm. you have it's all happening at the transition between night and sunrise. The sunrise is mentioned multiple times. Mm. Right as the sun is rising, the waters are parted and the dry land appears. Genesis 2, Genesis 3. That's days one. The light. Oh, the light. Day two, water separated from the waters. Mm-hmm. Day three, so that the dry land emerges. Yeah. Um, so it leads you to ask the question, all right, what about the sun, moon, and stars on day four? Mm-hmm. What about the sky flyers and water swarmers on day five? What about? I have been reading Genesis 1 my whole life. Mm-hmm. And that was never pointed Got it. out. Yeah. And Got it was it. just like, what? In the world? Yeah, and there it is right there in the vocabulary. So, it would, does it lead us to expect things from days four through six? So, I wish I had my Hebrew Bible here because it has all my coloring and notes <laughs> on it. This was part of where we went in the conversation then. The song of the sea, the praise song that Israel sings after it, mm-hmm. is where the next step of Genesis 1 and the Eden story come into play. Because that song is all about the victory of Yahweh over the gods and over Egypt. Which chapter is this? Exodus 15. 15. Yeah, they come out from the other side, they're rescued, Mm -hmm. and there's this worship song. Mm -hmm. Yep, that's right. So in this song, we're praising Yahweh for his acts of deliverance over Pharaoh. So this is just rough, like kind of spotting themes in the song. One is there's a lot of focus on the destruction of the enemy in the waters, mm-hmm. right? So actually, that's what that's all riffing off is is flood. That's flood imagery mm-hmm. of God destroying the wicked with the chaos waters. Yeah, God is the master of the chaos waters. But then look in verse eleven. The conclusion after watching Pharaoh and his armies and the evil destroyed in the flood. The conclusion of verse eleven is, "Who is like you among the Elohim, O mm. Lord?" Mm. There's the sun, moon, and stars. <laughs> <laughs> well, in other words, no, no, it's actually, it's kind of where I'm going. You remember in Genesis 1, days 4 and 6 are the days where the rulers of the cosmos are appointed. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. The sun, moon, and stars, and, and specifically the sun and moon, specifically called the rulers of day mm-hmm. and night, mm-hmm. corresponding to the earthly or the land rulers. Yeah. You have the rulers above, the rulers below. Right. And they correspond to each other. What that tells me then is heaven and earth and the inhabitants of heaven and earth are mirrors of each other, mm. so to speak. In the 10th plague of the firstborn, God says when he passes over Egypt to strike the firstborn, he says he's bringing a judgment against Pharaoh and the Elohim of Egypt, mm. Exodus twelve twelve. Mm. So the last plague tells you that the plagues have been an, an assault both on Pharaoh and his house and royal ideology, and also to the Elohim Mm. that are a part of the principalities and powers over Egypt. And you see that same theology reflected here in this song. When Pharaoh is brought to his end, 
the conclusion is there's no Elohim like Yahweh. Mm. He's clearly the Elohim in charge around here. There's no other power yeah. in the universe yeah. that is more. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there are no rulers above or below that can challenge Yahweh because hmm. he's the creator. He can, right? He's the mm -hmm. ruler, of master of the chaos waters. Yeah. So from that point then, look where the poem goes. In verse 13, then, in your loyal love, you've taken the people that you've redeemed and you have led them. We talked about this in our conversation in the podcast. That word lead rhymes with the word Noah. Mm. Noah's name is Noah. Uh. This verb is nacha. And then you guide them to your holy um, habitation. Verse 17, you're going to bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, the place that you've made for your dwelling. This is all Eden. And that now we're to either day six of God, right? Leading right. his people and appointing them, planting, and it's planting Eden Planting the imagery. human rulers as an image of God, planting Correct. them in the Eden. That's right. Yeah. yeah, and in that place where God will dwell with his human rulers, he reigns forever as king. That's mm. verse 18. So it really kind of have to read the full the concluding song mm. to pick up the completion of Genesis 1 and 2 of the design patterns. Yeah. Anyhow. That's cool. Yeah, it is cool. These, these Yeah, this literature is amazing. So what, notice what we're doing. We're, we're continuing to basically cycle through each large narrative chunk is patterned on the template of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Really, all of 1 through 11 provides the template. And then later stories, through their vocabulary, can just pick up those earlier themes and then develop them in a new direction. Mm. So, for example, the human rulers and the heavenly rulers, you meet their corrupted versions in the Exodus story of mm. Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. Mm -hmm. So they have to be brought down in the flood mm. so that a new creation can emerge, a new Eden can emerge. And that's the yeah, this, this flood motif too of mm -hmm. just the chaotic waters being unleashed yeah. to deal with that. That's you right. You see it in Genesis 6. Correct, yeah. And um, then you see it here in, in Exodus. That's right. Yeah. 14. So God promised never to destroy the whole cosmos. <laughs> uh, but apparently that doesn't keep God from bringing local floods. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like here at the sea, you know, to take out the, the human and spiritual bad guys. Okay. All right. Well. That's a lot. There was a lot. Man, if someone just jumped into this <laughs> podcast for the first time. Deep end of the pool. Yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. But if you've been listening... Following along, yeah, yeah, you're Maybe tracking. Maybe that's scratching some some things, and yeah, it makes me want to ex chase mm. some ideas down further. Mm. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Thank you, Tim. Yeah, thank you, everybody, for your great questions. Really thoughtful. Um, again, every question that we choose to read out loud represents usually anywhere from three to five to ten questions that were very similar to it. So uh, we're trying to group them all together and respond in the time that we have. So thanks, you guys. There was one other thing that we wanted to address. <laughs> Actually, I think a couple episodes ago, we were talking about trying to be rulers of time. And we had a discussion about, I, I said something to the degree of, I noticed that in my life, every five to seven years, I get this like, 
I start something mm-hmm. and it seems like it comes to some sort of culmination. Yeah. And in then like you five t- or seven years. There's yeah. something about that time period. That's right. That's right. It's enough time for something significant to happen. Yeah. And then you said, and that's about how long we've been at the Bible Project. That's how long we've been at the Bible Project. <laughs> and it feels like uh, something significant has happened. Yeah. Yeah. Very significant. Way more than we anticipated. Mm-hmm. And then... I, I think we said, and now we're going to go off and think about what's next. And it actually, that comment spun some people out <laughs> because I think imaginations went off thinking we were going to go do something else and not do this project anymore. So if that was you listening to that conversation and you were like, what, what are they going to do? Is, is the project going to continue? Yes, we're going <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. to continue this project. We love yeah. this project. It's been such a wonderful thing to be able to do this mm-hmm. i mean really amazing yeah, yeah. we have um, lots of more video content planned yeah lots of videos planned yeah. for years we've got <laughs> we've got <laughs> yeah. uh, a, a, a calendar that goes out years tons of other ideas there was a big shift in the organization like mm. we brought on an executive director mm-hmm. um this mm-hmm. year mm-hmm. and it's just grown to become mm. something that feels yeah different it's into a new season. Yeah. And it's exciting. Yeah, it is exciting. Yeah. And uh, it's allowing me and you mm-hmm. to kind of rethink and refocus mm-hmm. on what we put our, our thoughts to and, yeah. and just some more freedom. So yeah. there's a lot going on. We're really excited about all of it. Yep. And don't worry. Yeah, we're not going anywhere. We're not going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We are trying to work from a place of rest and joy. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So thanks. Thanks for being part of this with us. Yes. Hi, this is Jeremy LaDuke. I'm from Salem, Oregon, and I first uh, heard about the Bible Project on Facebook. Hi, this is Caroline Saito. I'm from Honolulu, Hawaii. Hello, this is Hector Martinez. I am from Mexico, Veracruz. Mi nombre es Hector Martinez. Yo soy de Mexico, Veracruz. My favorite thing about the Bible Project is it brings the Bible to life. We believe the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. Or a crowdfunded project by people like me. Find free videos, study notes, podcasts, and more at thebibleproject.com. 